to the Wagner Ministries International Podcast. As you listen to this message, our prayer is that you would be motivated and empowered to follow Christ and lead others to Him. Enjoy. God bless you, my friends. This is Evangelist Kevin Wagner, founder of Wagner Ministries International, welcoming you to our podcast today. On our last podcast, we looked at Paul's life after he was saved and how he spent three silent years essentially communing with the Lord and then was thrust into a life of ministry. We learned that God sometimes calls us to a season of solitude with Him, but only for a season. Once we are built up in Jesus, we are then to go out to a lost and dying world, bringing Jesus' love to them. Today, as we move forward in Acts, we finish chapter 9 and focus on the exciting theme of resurrection. In verses 32 to 43, we see Peter being used by God to perform one of the great miracles of the Bible, the raising of Tabitha from the dead. Listen to this starting in verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. What a powerful miracle. And now, let's continue looking at one of the great miracles of God, the restoration of life to someone who has died. Throughout the Bible, there are eight different people recorded who were raised from the dead. There is also one instance of a group of people being raised from the dead. In a moment, we'll review these instances, but first of all, I want to make a distinction. Strictly speaking, it's not accurate to say that, for instance, Tabitha in today's story from Acts 9 was resurrected. In the history of creation, only Jesus himself has been resurrected, that is, that is, brought back to life again from the dead with a body that is immortal, that won't age and will never die again. This is something that eventually will happen to every one of us, believer and unbeliever alike, but so far only Jesus has been resurrected. And when our resurrections happen as Jesus returns again, each person will then be ushered into his or her eternal destiny, whether that be heaven or hell. What happened to Tabitha and the other biblical examples we'll see in a moment is more properly called resuscitation, or perhaps better, reanimation. It is God breathing life into a body that has recently died, bringing that person back to life again. However, their bodies are still mortal, and eventually these people will die again. Even people like Tabitha then would have to wait for an eternal resurrected body just like the rest of us. 
Having made this distinction clear then, let's do a biblical survey of the nine instances of reanimation that the scripture records. The Bible's first example and one of the three Old Testament instances is in 1 Kings 17. Here Elijah pleads with God to bring life back into the son of a widow from the town of Zarephath. We'll pick up the story in verse 17, and as I'm reading it to you, notice the widow's reaction to the miracle and the effect it had on her. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Isn't that a powerful miracle? And if you like that one, which I'm sure you did, then try this one on for size. The next instance is of Elisha being used by God to raise the Shunammite woman's son from the dead in 2 Kings 4. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father who was with the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head! His father told the servant, Carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying on his couch, dead. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and, and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite, and he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Friends, as we saw in the first miracle, note the mother's reaction and the effect it had on her. In 2 Kings 13, we find the exciting instance of an unidentified Israelite man being reanimated simply by coming into contact with the life-giving power of God present in the buried remains of the prophet Elisha. Elisha died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Let me stop here for a moment. 
By this point, some of you may be having some natural cynicism and skepticism creeping into your minds because of these fantastic biblical accounts. I'll deal with this point more completely today, but suffice it to say at this point that simply because we may have never experienced an event like this among people we know, this is not a logical or satisfactory reason to cynically dismiss the possibility of reanimations occurring. It is impossible for any one of us or even a group of us to have experienced every experience or phenomenon our creation has experienced. And particularly as believers, it is a logical inconsistency to on the one hand affirm that God is all-powerful and yet deny Him the ability to do something miraculous of this nature. While Bible-believing Christians are often labeled naive by the skeptical, unbelieving world, it is more accurate to see the skeptic as narrow and closed-minded in this regard, even though he or she would vigorously deny this. The New Testament contains six more instances of reanimation. In Mark 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Pay close attention to the details here. Note the similarities between this and Tabitha's experience, since I'll be referring to these later. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. In Luke 7, Jesus raises the widow's son from the town of Nain from the dead. There is no better way to stop a funeral, friends, than to raise the person who the funeral's for from the dead. And again, note the people's reactions and the far-reaching effects of the miracle. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Of course, you probably remember the story of Lazarus in John 11. He was in the tomb for four days, but Jesus put life back into him. You probably remember the story, but you may not remember the effect that the miracle had on the people in the area. 
Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The fourth instance of reanimation in the New Testament is in our text today from Acts, uh, Tabitha's raising. And the fifth instance is in Acts 20, where Paul is used by God to raise a young man named Eutychus from the dead. The last biblical record of reanimation is really very tantalizing. It is in Matthew 27 and is an incident of group reanimation on the day Jesus was crucified. Let's pick up this amazing story in verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Obviously, these people had only been dead a short time since their bodies had not begun any permanent decay or disfigurement. Now, I believe that most of us here today, while agreeing that these are indeed remarkable miracles, don't have much, if any, trouble at all believing that these reanimations really did happen the way the Bible describes them. This is obviously because we have such a strong trust in the trustworthiness of God's Word, which has been proved time and again to be both true in our own lives and in the lives of countless others down through the centuries. What perhaps is more difficult to believe, requiring more faith, is when we hear of similar miracles happening in our world today. I'll never forget the first time I heard a present-day reanimation preached. It was at a seminary chapel service while I was a student. Since then, I have heard similar instances of reanimations occurring both in, uh, uh, in numerous nations of the world. Now, the response to that sermon was quite predictable, but also very disappointing as many people preparing to be pastors were horribly skeptical and even embarrassed for the poor student who preached about it. But I ask you today, friends, is there ever any reason to be embarrassed about the power of God? It was extremely disappointing for me to see people in leadership positions in the church ashamed of what God has done and still can do for His glory today. And it is literally devastating to realize that for many Christians today, it is easier for them to believe the latest copy of the National Enquirer than it is to trust and be affected by eyewitness testimonies from missionaries around the world as to what God is doing to impact lives for eternity. Yes, to impact lives for eternity. In our lesson today from Acts 9, Verses 40 to 42 say this. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. 
He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Did you catch that? This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Folks, when God breathes life back into a body that is known to be dead, people listen, and inevitably many believe. This is the testimony over and over again, as you remember from our biblical survey today, and as you can see from modern-day examples too. Consider just two this morning. Consider Mexico, where I have read reports from local missionaries of reanimations having occurred in the last several years. And now consider this, that the growth of evangelical Protestantism is astounding in this once predominantly Roman Catholic country. Many nominal Roman Catholics are meeting Jesus personally as a result of God's power being displayed in visibly real ways. And now consider China, another country where reanimations have been reported. In a country where, where only 2 million Christians lived before the communist takeover in 1948, now estimates are that up to 100 million Christians inhabit that great land. That's a 5,000% increase during almost 70 years of violent persecution and oppression of Christians. Apparently, miracles are bringing unbelievers into the kingdom and are also an important factor in assisting these new Chinese Christians in preserving their faith. Amazingly, apart from Bibles, missionaries, pastors, churches, and significant Christian fellowship, since they are still under communist rule, Christianity is flourishing there. What have been the chief sustaining influences? Signs and wonders are the probable answers. In June of 1985, Mahesh Chavda, an American evangelist, was leading a crusade in Zaire, Africa, that was attracting thousands of individuals each night. By Wednesday, June 12th, the morning crowd had swelled to 30,000. That morning, Mulamba Manikai was standing in the crowd, and although his heart had been crushed, he was listening to Mahesh intently. Unlike most of his neighbors, Mulamba and his family were Christians. When Mulamba had returned home from the meeting on Tuesday, he found his six-year-old son, Kachinyi, paralyzed and comatose. Mulamba and his older brother, Kuamba, carried the little boy to the medical facility at Mulamba's company. He was diagnosed with cerebral malaria, and Mulamba was told to take his son to the clinic for treatment. At 4 a.m. on Wednesday morning as they neared the clinic, the six-year-old Kachinyi had a spasm and stopped breathing. Then his heart stopped beating, and he died in his father's arms. Inside the clinic, a physician gave the boy an injection and tried to revive him, but it was useless. Your son is dead, the, the doctor said to Malamba. I can do nothing for him. You must take him to the hospital in, Kirsha, in Kinshasa and get a death certificate to bury him. When they brought the body to the hospital, the boy was again pronounced dead. Malamba left his son's body at the hospital with Kuamba so that he could go borrow money to buy a burial permit. As he stepped into the street, Malamba began to pray that the Lord would raise his son from the dead if it would bring glory to God. 
Just as he remembered the story of Peter raising Tabitha from the dead, Mulamba heard God speak these words, Why are you weeping? My servant is in this city. Go to him. Mulamba knew the Lord was referring to Mahesh. He, he rushed to the square room where Mahesh was preaching to 30,000 people. Mahesh was just concluding his message. At exactly 12 noon, eight hours after Kachinyi had died, Mahesh stepped back from the microphone. Suddenly, Mahesh felt as if God had taken him into another realm. He was no longer aware of the throngs of people. He was enveloped in silence. The gentle voice of the Holy Spirit spoke clearly and unmistakably. There is a man here whose son has died this morning. Invite him to come forward. I want to do something wonderful for him. Mahesh spoke these exact words to the audience. Mulamba ran forward shouting, It is I! It is I! Immediately Mahesh placed his hands on Mulamba's head and prayed, Lord Jesus, in your name, I bind the power of darkness and death that are at work in this man's son, and I ask you to send your spirit of resurrection to bring him back to life. The crowd parted as Mulamba turned and began running to the hospital. Here's what happened at the hospital at 12 noon, June 12, 1985, while Mahesh was praying over Mulamba. Back at the hospital, Kuamba was holding the body of his brother's son in his arms. At noon, he felt the body move. And then the boy sneezed. Kachini sat up and asked for food. Then he began to call for his father. God had brought him back from the dead. Needless to say, the hospital was in an uproar. Mulamba walked into the room as Kachini was calling for his father. Mulamba grabbed his son and began to shout praises to God in the hospital room that just a few minutes earlier had served as the morgue for his son's lifeless body. News of this great miracle spread through the city, and that weekend over 200,000 came into the evening uh, meeting to hear the gospel. Many were saved and healed. The death notification for Kachini Manakai with its official seal, had already been signed by the physician. A skeptic might claim that Kachinyi's death had been misdiagnosed and that he was only in a coma. However, this would not explain the timing of the revelation that a man's son had died and that God was going to do something for him, given to Mahesh eight hours later and the boy's immediate recovery. Those who know Mahesh Chavda personally are convinced of his integrity and the validity of his ministry. But so are 30,000 residents of Kinshasa Zaire, who witnessed the miraculous events of June 12, 1985. Mulamba's brother Kuamba became a Christian after witnessing the power of God that morning. The Manakai family still lives in Kinshasa Zaire today. The legacy of Joppa then rings true today, doesn't it? As Acts 9.42 says, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Certainly there were skeptics in Jesus' day, as there are in ours, particularly among those of us in the enlightened, industrialized Western world. Perhaps you have some questions yourself as to the validity of these alleged miracles. If you are in the situation today, I share with you these relevant words written by C. Peter Wagner 
uh, uh, PhD, uh, church growth expert, and one of the most highly respected and prominent seminary professors uh, in the last several decades. I have read lengthy explanations, Wagner writes, of why people who were raised from the dead in Indonesia were not really raised from the dead. Some Western investigators apparently went to Indonesia and concluded that according to their Western definitions of death, it did not happen. This would be amusing if it were not so pathetic. God performed the miracles for Indonesians, not for Americans or Europeans. If Indonesians really and truly thought in terms of their own worldview that the dead had been raised, the miracle happened. The ordinary course of nature had been altered. If through observing this, Indonesian believers were strengthened in their faith and Indonesian unbelievers were convinced of the power of God and became followers of Jesus Christ, the purpose of the miracle was accomplished. Even within our Western worldview, the most advanced scientists and doctors of jurisprudence have not been able to agree precisely on when death actually occurs. Why then superimpose our inexact worldview on the Indonesians' inexact worldview. It proves very little. And friends, Wagner's right. It does. When God raised people from the dead in Bible days, it was so that they could know that He was the one true God and so commit their lives to Him. When God does the same thing today, God uses the reanimation of the body as a means to winning a far more valuable prize the souls of the men and women affected by the miracle. I praise God for what He's done and is still doing. And I pray with all my heart that He will simply do what it takes to capture the attention, and far more importantly, the souls of a spiritually dead and indifferent people in our community and across our land. I close today then with a brief look at one other significant issue arising from today's lesson. I asked you earlier to pay close attention to the things that Jesus said and did in raising Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5. You remember that Jesus was careful to take Peter, James, and John with him to watch and learn. Jesus was discipling these men, you see. He was giving them on-the-job training. As apprentices, they watched their master go to work and learn they did. Because if you compare the way Jesus worked and the way Peter worked in Acts 9, you'll notice many similarities. The words Peter spoke, the things he did, and the instructions he gave before and after the reanimation all show that Peter had paid very close attention to how Jesus did things. He had learned from his master well, shown by the way he imitated Jesus so closely and also by the effectiveness of his ministry, which matched Jesus' own. This discipling process, this less spiritually mature Peter learning from someone more spiritually mature than he, points me towards something I want to share with you today. Once I was listening to a Christian radio broadcast, the guest on this broadcast made the point that every Christian needs to have three kinds of relationships in their lives for them to be growing, effective, and fruitful Christians. Each one of us needs to have a close Christian friend that is approximately uh, at the same level of spiritual growth and maturity as we are, so we can discuss spiritual joys and struggles that likely we are both experiencing at the same time. We each need a Christian brother or sister like this. 
We also need a more spiritually mature Christian in our lives that is actively taking an interest in us, someone who we respect and who takes intentional time to disciple us, to help us grow into everything that God wants us to be. This person does not necessarily need to be older, but merely someone who has been a Christian longer and who we can learn from as he or she teaches us what God has taught them. And finally, each one of us needs to have a newer or less mature Christian in our life that we are pouring our lives into, helping them grow and mature. We need someone with whom we can share what God has taught us to help answer his or her questions and to disciple. We need these three relationships then, friend, mentor, and disciple in our lives and we need to be each of these to someone else if we are to be as effective and as fruitful a Christian as we can be. As I listen to this broadcast, it seemed to make a lot of sense. I mean, virtually every vocation has this model in place, so it would seem that human nature dictates that for the effective growth of an individual and a movement, these three relationships are fundamental. Peter had these three relationships. His friend John was his ministry colleague and partner. They shared experiences all right, even nights in jail together. Jesus himself obviously was Peter's mentor, and that's who Peter learned from. That's who helped him grow into a man of God. And Mark, the gospel writer, was Peter's own disciple, someone who he poured his own life into. As a younger Christian, Mark accompanied Peter on some of his ministry expeditions, and he learned from Peter what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus. So Peter had these three relationships in place. I ask you today, do you? Do you have that Christian brother or sister? Do you have someone mentoring you? Is there someone in your life that you would consider a disciple? If you answered no to any or all of these questions, then I submit to you today that your Christian life and relationships are somehow lacking and deficient. This is not something to despair over today, but rather, I would encourage you to ask God to provide at least one person in your life to fulfill each of these three special kinds of relationships. Seek out people like this so that the relational part of your Christian life may be as complete and full as possible. Some of you may be thinking, I don't have time for any more relationships in my life. I'm already saturated time-wise in every other way as it is. If that is you today, ask yourself, what's most important? What ultimately do you want to invest your life and time into? Developing your relationship with Jesus Christ and helping others to do the same or something else? If you're a believer today, you'll know where your priorities should be. And you'll also know where they are. I challenge you today to make the changes in your life to line up both of these together. Pray and seek. Pray and seek. Pray and seek. Ask God for these relationships and actively and intentionally seek them out. And watch your relationship with Jesus Christ take off. Who knows? You may even end up with a ministry like Peter. It's time for you to play your part in expanding God's kingdom even more than before. As always, my friends, I look so forward to our next podcast where we will move further into the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit uses His Word 
to help us walk daily in the power of God. Have a blessed day in Jesus. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by today's message. For more information regarding Wagner Ministries International, go to wagnerministries.org. And if you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at wagnerministries.org. God bless.